0: In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
1: Hey, it's the Long Form Podcast. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. I, of course, am Aaron Lammer. Welcome. Hey, Aaron. (laughs) We're all here. Did I throw you off by going backwards there? Also, just I, of course, am Aaron (laughs) Lammer. Who else could I possibly be? (laughs) I've only ever been Aaron Lammer, still Aaron Lammer right now. Aaron Lammer, who did you talk to this week? I talked to Bryn Jonathan Butler, who is a really excellent writer who writes a lot about Cuba and a lot about boxing and sometimes even about Cuban boxers. Uh, I really have enjoyed his work. He's had a very wild and crazy uh, last decade um, living in Cuba and now cannot go back to Cuba. Uh, It was a great interview. I'm excited for this one. Uh, we got some sponsors. Evan. First sponsor is The Summer Game by Roger Angel. It's his collection of baseball writing.
2: It's uh, it's being put out by Open Road Integrated Media. Uh, he's uh, the world's greatest baseball writer who is now in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Congratulations, Congratulations.
1: Roger Angel. There is a piece from the book uh, called The Interior Stadium. It's on the Longform website. Right now, you can go there and find it. Uh, built with creativists, that story. It is various. built with creativists. Admire the design. Another sponsor. No, I'm admiring the synergy. <laughs> Another sponsor. It's Flight 232. It's book by Lawrence Gonzalez. It's put out by W.W. W. Norton. Uh, 25 years ago, a plane went down in Sioux City, Iowa, and uh, Gonzalez has done this sort of definitive recap of this crash. Uh, no one was expected to survive, and 184 people did. It's a really intense story. I Jesus. recommend it. Yeah. If you've got a really intense story to tell, there's no better way to tell it than with an email newsletter from Tiny Letter. It's made by MailChimp. They do uh, newsletters like no one else. I highly recommend the service. Tiny Letter from MailChimp. Thank you. Here's Aaron and Bryn Jonathan Butler. Welcome, Bryn Jonathan Butler. So you have these sort of twin twin fascinations in your work, uh, Cuba and boxing. I don't know which one to start on, and I didn't prepare enough to choose a course. So let's talk about what originally brought you to Cuba.
2: It was certainly the boxing. And I mean, the two fascinations that Cuba had that mirrored my own were were boxing and literature. It was the most literate society on earth. After after 1959, there were literacy campaigns by Fidel so that it, it is somewhere in the neighborhood of ninety nine percent or a hundred percent. And I was fascinated by the paradox that America's most famous author, Ernest Hemingway, spent the last twenty years of his life there. And the moment he came over here, he blew his brains out. <laughs> you know um, well how How old were you when you first first went to Cuba? I was twenty. i I, I went over right around the time the Elian Gonzalez saga was going on. Um, being used as a kind of political football (laughs) by both sides.
1: And what what were you doing with your life at that point when you first went to Cuba?
2: I was going there as an amateur boxer. Um, I was kicking around various jobs. I was uh, trying to figure out what I wanted to do in terms of uh, I'd I'd written a book. It had been turned down by a major publisher, so I was back to square one. So I worked as a bouncer. I was hustling speed chess for a while. I dealt drugs for about a week. (laughs) um where did you where did you grow up I grew up in Vancouver and and I left Vancouver when I was about 18 19 to go to Spain Mm. and came back to Vancouver and my grandfather died and there was a little bit of money left over he wasn't somebody that I had talked to for many years because he was kind of an asshole to my mother and my mother's way of sort of getting revenge against them was to use the 5,000 that was the inheritance to be a kind of gift to me to to go to Cuba she said to me one day, if you go anywhere in the world, where would you want to go? And I said, I go to Cuba. And she said, well, you're going. And your grandfather just sent you. How long did you think a five grand would last you in Cuba? I, I didn't know. I mean, my first thought going there was maybe, maybe it would be possible if, if what I read was true, that everybody was earning 15 to $20 a month, there seemed to be no reason why the athletes would be excluded from that that dynamic, so I thought, well, maybe some of these guys. I, I'd heard the black market economy was bigger than the existing economy, um, so there must be some kind of side deal that I might be able to put together. So on the flight over, I was reading a book called um, "Pitching Around Fidel" by S. L. Price, and the protagonist of that book and the big scoop of that book was a boxer named Hector Vinet, who was a two-time Olympic champion, who told Price on the record that he wanted to leave while he was in Cuba. And no athlete up to that time had ever done that with a foreign journalist. So I thought, well, Hector N had been thrown off the team. Maybe it's possible to track him down and see if I could get private lessons, help him out. He could help me out. And it took about three days to find him. And uh, he agreed to train me for $6 a day. And so for a couple months, I was with him every day. And when you
1: say that you went there um, with the expectation of boxing, uh, were you
2: like intending to fight? In Cuba, or were you intending to just train? I wanted to see if I could get Olympic coaching, and I wanted to see if I could get Olympians to train me huh. on the side. and And so I tracked down the oldest boxing gym in Cuba, a small little outdoor gym called Rafael Trejo, and uh, they had another coliseum called called Kid Chocolate, um, where all the famous fighters have passed through, and and just. Asking on the street for Hector Vanant. it didn't take long to find him, and then we just negotiated a little price, and off we went.
1: And what was your relationship with him like?
2: Uh, he was, he was interesting because, like me, uh, we always kind of have a book in our back pocket, and I I always feel comfortable around people who are readers. Mm-hmm. I'm not so comfortable with writers, but I love <laughs> readers, and so. I knew so much about him because he was this star of this book and he was such an important figure in Cuba at that time and such an ambiguous figure because he'd been punished as a, a traitor for a crime he hadn't committed, which was that um, the state and Fidel assumed he would defect because two of his teammates had left. The first ever Olympic gold medalist had left, Joel Casamayor and his teammate um, Garbey, who were extremely elite fighters. And so not only had Hector Finet not planned to leave as well, but he'd attempted to talk them out of it during the 96 Olympic Games. Um, but in Cuba, you can be charged with the sort of catch-all crime of dangerousness, peligrosidad, and uh, that's what he was caught with, that they assumed he would leave. So, of course, he was punished before he had a chance to and, and was sort of stranded in this limbo of training children at this little, little gym.
1: I think um, it's safe to say a lot of people uh, decamp for a foreign country at age 20 with the ambition to write about it, um, but uh, few, few uh, do so as extensively as you ended up doing. At, at what point did you start trying to convert your experiences to, to actual writing?
2: Well, very quickly, because at the same time that I met Hector Vinet, the other person I wanted to track down was Gregorio Fuentes, who was the model for The Old Man in the Sea who even at 102 years old was still living in Kohimar where the book take, took place and you could I arranged a visit through a, a friend uh, and he was charging fifteen dollars just to sit down with him and talk about Hemingway and and what Hemingway's role was in this country which was so confusing to me so I was struck by this this sort of sense that Havana was the biggest small town in the world you were a couple of degrees separated from seemingly everybody um, and very quickly, just starting a journal, I, I found that sort of for the first time in my life, I had chemistry with my material, which I, I don't think I really had before with, with the other things that I was writing about. So I was aware I was somewhere new with writing, and philosophically, I didn't know that you had to have chemistry with what you write about. I thought you could just, if you had talent, you could muster good stuff on your own, and I, I don't think it's true in writing or, or in a relationship, for that matter, um, even if on paper things should add up to something that's good, you don't know until it happens. And that's part of the magic with, with relating to anything. What,
1: what does it mean to, to develop chemistry in a situation like that? And, and how, I mean, how did you develop that sort of as a writer over the years and the time you spent there?
2: Um, I think because I, I dropped out of high school, I didn't, I didn't learn to write through a lot of the conventional paths that people do, I think where I started to learn to write was, was in a boxing gym. I was being taught how to do something I was terrified to do, which was fight, defend myself, and that kind of thing. But meanwhile, the, what was jumping out at me about these, these strangers who scared me because they were so intimidating was the narratives behind why they were fighting. Um, Why were all the boxing gyms that I ever heard of in ghettos? You know, why were they like lifelines for people who were in really desperate situations? Not the desperate situation I was in. I was a middle-class kid, but I was seeking out this kind of lighthouse that I think boxing gyms are. And in the process, I found all these people who were not assigned to look out for me the way family is or friends are, but they do it because somebody was in their lives who did the same thing. And sort of in Cuba, I, I was coming at them from that perspective of I, I never looked at it. I've never looked at any of the writing I do with boxers as being sports specific. I'm interested in the narrative behind why we struggle for anything. I'm as interested in, in the United States what it says about our great champions historically as as in Cuba. Um, it's all the narratives behind what they're doing. It just happens to be what they're doing is something that I have a huge amount of admiration for.
1: Hmm. It's interesting, I'm not a boxing fan. I mean i that that sounds negative, but I'm like i, I uh, boxing is like a void to me. It's something that I've seen lots of talented writers sort of pour themselves into in a way that like I only know boxing through boxing writing. I've never had that experience actually watching the sport and it was interesting to hear you say you know, when you when you look at Boxing writing, it's its not technical in the way, you know, the sort of money ball, baseball kind of stuff where you can break things down and sort of analyze it in a statistical manner. It's really just a, a person, uh, a person fighting, as you said. What, what attracted you initially to boxing B- beyond those human relationships? How did the sport itself sort of get under your skin?
2: Well... I was 11 and somebody beat the shit out of me when I was in front of just about everybody I knew in a field that I was lured out to to be a spectator and it turned out it was a giant ruse to get me out there so that I could be swarmed by everybody who was in attendance. And so for the next three years, I it rocked me to the core of my identity and not because I was hurt, but the humiliation was something I literally ran away from that field, ran away from. This sort of collective heel of everybody who was stomping and spitting down on me but I wasn't able to run away from that humiliation I mean it it stuck to me and I couldn't find a way out I just didn't feel safe in the world I didn't feel safe leaving my front door and so I caught an interview over the summer when I was 14 of of Mike Tyson on TV he was in prison for a rape conviction I was not a boxing fan I certainly was not a Mike Tyson fan And he was talking about his own experiences with bullying. And he was the first person I'd ever heard discussing that issue in a way that made sense to me, that I could relate to. Um, He was so uh, exasperated just at the idea of why a stranger would even think to attack somebody else. And that's where I was coming from. To me, it seemed random. I don't look at it as random anymore because I think I made a, a wonderful victim. I made a wonderful person to choose for all the reasons that I'm saying about how badly it affected me. I think that makes me a very appealing target. But in his case, what I saw was that what made him so powerful and such a threatening victimizer was, was a construct of how effective he was as a victim. And that was the first time I was able to look at my own cowardice as a weapon because I thought if, if Tyson is coming from where I'm coming from and his fuel was cowardice, I have a lot of fuel in that department. I think I'm a world-class coward. And if that can, if I can use a millstone as a weapon and this guy can show me how, maybe I can do something with it. And so the next day, I'd never read a book for pleasure up to that point. So the next day I went to a boxing gym. I, I walked to this ghetto shithole in vancouver uh some of the highest incidents of IV drug use and aids yeah, and what's what's that just dis- the, dis- the downtown downtown yeah. east side oh, okay just an abysmal zombie ghetto of seven blocks that's it's just it it's not violent but it's it's some of the harshest existence that that i've ever seen of just people of just neglect and vancouver's you know consistently year after year one of the most in quotes livable cities on earth which sure. almost sounds apologetic <laughs> you know like uh, send your animals to the shelter yeah. you know they'll die well kind of thing but uh, i was just struck with with entering a boxing gym um it was a horrible experience, it's the only time I've ever been knocked out was my first day fighting, because they, they wanted you to get your ass kicked, and people were laughing at me as it was happening, so it was really compounding.
1: So they put you in a ring on your first day and someone's throwing full-on punches at
2: you. Yeah, and, and bashed my head in, and uh, I was completely numb for the next day. I rode the bus home and and couldn't think about anything. But the other place I went that day was a library, and I took out every book that Mike Tyson mentioned during that interview from prison, because he talked about while he was in the hole, um, reading Voltaire and reading Fitzgerald and reading Hemingway and uh, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And the first five books I read were five Mike Tyson biographies, and I got out all the books um, that he mentioned from those writers, and I got biographies on all of those writers and I wanted to know what they were reading. And so my reading list has really been an extension of that day ever since. Does that feeling of
1: uh, victimhood that, that drives you, is, is that something that you can, uh, that endures, or is that something that's dissipated over, over your lifetime?
2: My thought was that I wanted to get revenge against the kid who went after me, but yeah. after I got to a position where I got pretty good in in gyms. I was beating gold gloves guys and and beating provincial champions in Canada and that kind of thing. Um and you're aware of this kind of line that delineates getting really good where you're okay with hurting people. And you know, you become a professional. And I thought, do I want to cross this line? Yeah. Because you know, my, my motivating reason for being there was was a reaction. It was less of a choice and more of a reaction. And what changed for me was that I had a trainer who was a world-class fighter um, in, in his prime, but he was also an alcoholic and a drug addict. And he was on the wagon at the time that I met him. And we sparred the first day that uh, he came into the gym to operate as a trainer. And I hit him with the hardest punch I've ever landed on a, a, a human being. And I'm 200 pounds and I can hit hard. And the smile that he gave me, and he just said, So, you know, so you want to be a fighter. It was one of those cliche kind of moments. And I just thought, I don't want to be a fighter. I'm not meant to be here. I'm meant to figure out a way to understand a person like him who has every reason to be hateful towards the world and yet is dedicating his life to being in people's corner. So when you when you went to Cuba and you started meeting
1: um, these boxers uh, your your, tra- your trainer I assume was somewhat older but the there was I assume boxers in your age range 18 20 I mean that's sort of that's your prime um, yeah. what sort of life experience in Cuba had led them to the ring
2: Well I think I think it's similar to to boxers everywhere in that you can have a better life if you can succeed as an athlete certainly as a you know uh, an elite athlete like like my trainer Hector Vanent was he was uh, a prodigy from very young grew up in the east eastern part of the island in Santiago de Cuba which is very poor um, was the hardest hit really before Fidel came to power and so consequently was the most the largest beneficiary of a lot of the a lot of the things that happened and so in many instances were expected to be the most loyal to the revolution So he had not been given some of the things that some of the other more famous boxers had been given in terms of a car, Um, but he had been given an apartment in Havana. And he expected that if, had he won, let's say, a third Olympic gold medal, he might have got a car, he might have had, uh, you know, maybe three or four times the amount of money per month that a regular Cuban would expect to have. So, which is enormous by Cuban terms. Mm. So, um, as
1: you started to interview athletes in Cuba, um, some of whom were already in a troubled political situation or or had a a history um, that was being tracked by the authorities, what do you do in a situation where you can't come out and ask someone something literally because it literally could put them in danger um, or or you know that they can't give you an honest answer like, I would like to leave Cuba? How do you, as a developing as a reporter deal with uh, a society where we're being honest is is not totally acceptable in, in that situation
2: well I guess there's a few parts to, to answering that question one is that when I started interviewing people on the record I was so far in debt that I had to fit, complete what I was doing that there was no I never had the ability to think should I be asking this person these questions because I could be arrested um, or at the best, the best-case scenario was being sent to the airport to leave. Every journalist said, don't go near the subject of, of defection. Um, and I was I was pursuing Guillermo Rigondo who was the most famous defector, arguably, since since the revolution. It's certainly the highest profile.
1: To so catch people up who are listening, so this is sort of a little bit deeper into your time at Cuba. Yeah. Rigondeau is... I don't know how old he is. He's probably about thirty-four. Thirty-four, right? Thirty. So, yeah. So at, at this point, you had been in Cuba for the better part of a decade.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I met him. I met him in two thousand seven. But that's that's when I started uh, considering the idea of of going on record with interviews. Was hmm. I met him? I met him at the gym where I was training. Um, he had attempted to defect the previous summer during the Pan Am Games in Brazil. And uh, had been arrested and been sent back to Cuba, and nobody really knew what was going to happen next.
1: And this was after he had been sort of on the lam for a bit. He was found yeah. found, found in Brazil.
2: Found with hookers um, and a foreign promoter who was trying to line up passports that were awaiting him in the consulate, send him over to Europe, uh, professional career waiting, Miami. Um, yeah, it all looked like the, the infrastructure was there to get this guy out and get him started in professional boxing. Um, and then something goes wrong, and it's not clear what's gone wrong. And Castro, who'd stepped down from power the year before, was regularly offering installments in the state newspaper, which were called Reflections in, in the Grandma newspaper. And so he weighed in on the situation and just said, this is tantamount to a soldier dropping his weapon on the ground and joining the opposing army he's a judas and a traitor to his people and he's never going to fight again and from there i think that it became an international soap opera of what is fidel going to do we've heard all the stories of how awful this is going to be is he going to shoot him you know put him against a wall or is he going to arrest him well fidel didn't do anything all he did was he lived up to his word and said he's not going to fight again so he didn't let him fight again. So Regondo didn't know what to do. And in, in that time of limbo, he was just wandering around where he was almost literally a non-person, a non-citizen in Cuba. And so one day he just wandered to the place he felt most comfortable, which was this little gym in old Havana, this dusty shithole of a gym that has produced all these champions. And while I was training with Hector Vinan, Vinan said, you know, don't look, but The best boxer who ever lived is behind you. And it was as if a silent alarm had gone off in the gym. And several other people said, it's him, it's him. They used the term L, meaning meaning him, which is usually used to describe Fidel. If you hear an L and it's not attributed to somebody, you can assume it's Fidel who's being discussed. So I went, oh, my God, the old man Mm -hmm. is passing through. And so I looked behind me at where they were pointing, and I just saw what I thought was a kid is in the shadows because guillermo is only five foot five and 122 pounds he's the size of tom york you know it's easy to miss him i said i don't see anybody except that street kid he said no that's 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 rigando and so i went over to him and i introduced myself i'd seen him fight once um but he was the most elite captain of the team um and this extraordinarily high profile defector and uh, introduced myself and he smiled at me and just to make small talk I just said S- you know you have this gold grill on your teeth where where did you get that from and he said oh I just melted my gold medals into my mouth and I thought I think I've got a story here
1: he melted his Olympic medals and made a grill with them.
2: that's that's what he said and he said it's so nonchalantly uh, you know that for me here's a guy who's this elite figure who's meant to be this symbolic warrior on behalf of his country, you know, like a Cuban Bobby Fischer, fighting the fighting the fight for Fidel and, and communism on, on the international chessboard, um, and he's gone rogue, and yet it didn't work out. So what's going to happen next? Um, as I understood, he was under constant surveillance. His house was under 24-hour security, state security watch, um, and here he is just showing up at the gym, smoking a cigarette. So what
1: does it mean to get someone like him on record what what is the distinction for you in in terms of these stories um on the record versus off the record i mean does that mean that off the record people are like talking about defecting
2: all the time well they're scared to talk about it um it does make me uncomfortable to to approach just that there's an exploitation to it is that i i wanted to get get that story and I was behind the eight ball of my own financial desperation. I was $40,000 in debt to credit card companies. So... How w- did you uh, use credit cards in, in Cuba? Well, yeah, I didn't. Oh. I, I mean, just to, to get... I mean, when I started work on the film and that kind of thing, yeah, um, yeah get cameras, get people to help with sound. Oh, you know, okay. tra- so you were bringing
1: other people to Cuba to work on it?
2: And I was hiring other people. My, I, Nobody would come down with me to Cuba to shoot a, a story about... Cuba's most famous athletic defector so what I thought was okay then an alternative is is I'll go internally hiring all of the people who work for Cuban television and Cuban film and so I made friends with some of those groups and just started saying to them I'll pay any of you $75 a day which was like three months salary just give me eight hours of time and some days we're going to get interviews and other days we're just going to shoot around the city and just show quotidian life here Um, and here's who I'm, here's my list of people I want to interview. So if you don't want to do this, if you're not comfortable, don't do it. But if you do, I'm going to go hard to get all of these people because I don't know how much time I have. So instead of going from sort of the bottom up, my approach with Cuba was to go top down. So I started with Teofilo Stevenson, like the second most famous guy after Fidel and and then tried to get every other guy who would turned down the biggest amounts of money I didn't get them all in that order but I started recognizing that offering hundred and fifty dollars for an interview could go a long way to getting people to sit down what I was trying to do was to get them to tell their story because I'd never heard the story sort of man to man without a big network behind the interview either Cuban network or a foreign network I'd never heard somebody like me who was going at an amateur hour to just say, let me come to your house. Let me film how you live. And let's just discuss, break down all your reasons for saying no. And then gently offering follow-up questions that I hadn't heard them asked. So it wasn't, I was never trying for a gotcha moment. I was thrilled if they could convince me that they weren't brainwashed. Not that I thought they were brainwashed, but that's the way most most of the world had interpreted the only justification for turning down fifty million dollars of what you could make as a, a prize fighter.
1: How did you? What were those sort of secondary nudge questions? I mean, how do you? How do you lightly? Um, how do you lightly ask a question that that is the an, an answer could potentially be criminal too? Um, like how do you? How do you? How do you uh, introduce that?
2: Um, I, I sat, I sat down, I saw Felix Sabone, the Cuban Mike Tyson, turned down 25 million to come over to fight him for his first fight. Um, I saw him at a boxing tournament. I had a picture taken with him that took about three minutes with the Cuban camera that was used. So it was a very awkward three minutes of standing with my arm around this six foot six, 240 pound guy. And I said, you know, could, could I ever come by just to see your Olympic medals and that kind of thing. And he has a, Pretty serious speech impediment, which I don't think boxing helped, but he said, of course, and he gave me his phone number. And so when I got to his house, I said, what I, I've always wanted to know with you, and for all these athletes who say no to so much money, is it a decision that you feel in your heart, or is it an idea in your mind that convinces you that this is the right decision? And the smile on his face, and he just said, well, you know, I, I know I'm not a millionaire, But I think I made a million friends from a decision like this because I think I could go to any door in my country and somebody would give me a dollar or give me a piece of bread if I was hungry. And so it wasn't I was trying to flatter him, but I had an admiration for the decision that he'd made because I don't think I'd be capable of it. So I don't I didn't immediately try to undermine it thinking he must be full of shit. I, I just thought maybe he's not. One of the funniest moments that I had with with Felix Sabone was he said, oh, you're here about Regondo who just defected the same people who tried to get him out, tried to get me out and they couldn't convince me. So they talked to my wife and my wife's first response was, you'll have an easier time trying to get Fidel to leave the country than my husband. And it's funny because I had a Cuban editor who had def- who had left and even he couldn't not just stop laughing, but there was pride that even though the person made a different decision than he had, that he understood why why somebody would do that. That's not just out of fear or all of these rationalizations, um, that there was just pride in that I do stand for a lot of these principles that have offered a better life for, for people, um, despite how many things didn't work out.
1: Let's talk a little bit about, um, the idea of exploitation. Um, and the most recent piece you have out, uh, for SB nation, um, you describe a scene between, uh, yourself and, uh, Teofilo. I'm totally mispronouncing that no. Stevenson, um, who was, who was very much the, the Muhammad Ali, uh, of Cuba and, and could have fought Muhammad Ali had he, uh, chosen to leave Cuba. And you describe, before the camera is rolling this sort of drunken conversation he's having with the uh with his translator about how much money to try to squeeze out of you um for the interview and uh it's notable in the written version and i just watched the documentary where i actually saw it and it's significantly more intense uh in person i think the part that is uh that is hard to watch about it is not that he's asking for money but his sort of lack of awareness that he's on camera plotting uh, plotting this this ask of you and, and he's sort of visibly drunk at the time and um, living in, in, in squalor when you started to put this together I mean how, how do you feel about presenting this aged possibly senile drunk Teofalo Stevens into the world and, and not just his best rehearsed moments but his unrehearsed moments
2: yeah, I I think what I wanted with Cuba I think why I thought there was a story to tell is because every book and film that I'd seen, I felt like I was learning 80% about the people making those films and about 20% of the Cuba that I saw when I went there. And I never understood why what people talk about with Cuba, what, you know, what they what they find so fascinating is like the cars or the cigars or you know, or the old bars or you know, to me it seems like wardrobe to me what fascinated me the most about the country like the the pyramids of cuba are the people and the sphinx of those people was teophila stevenson and arranging that interview which took a couple of years to get him to actually go through with it because a lot of times on the phone he didn't know what day it was what week it was what month it was and he was really apprehensive about sitting down and I could hear it in his voice uh, you know my my father's an alcoholic I've lived with that my entire life I I know what it is that to the shame of that and everybody in Cuba knew that Teofilo Stevenson was an alcoholic everybody did but nobody had ever discussed it officially and certainly nobody had ever seen it on camera and I wasn't that wasn't my my MO with getting the interview but I wanted to to hear him in his own words in his own home discuss the consequences of of what it's like to do the impossible so the translator was a very close friend of his who was also very apprehensive about arranging the interview because he knew the condition that stevenson was in and stevenson was not just a friend of his but he said you know this is this is a a sex tape of the president's wife that you're gonna get if this happens you know that it's going to be impossible to see him the way he was if people can see him the way he is now and Stevenson had you know been in a car accident where he was drinking and killed a motorcyclist and it was just brushed under the rug and swept under the rug rather um, to preserve his image so the moment he let me into the, the house I was thinking I've heard from many journalists who've gotten this far that he will not allow you to turn on the camera. So I didn't waste any time. And the moment I was in there, I started setting up the camera. But while I set it up, I started recording. Now, I'd arranged with him to come to his house and pay a set fee to film him. So I didn't feel I was in violation of our agreement. Um, it, it wasn't a surreptitious camera. I had one camera. It was just me. And, yeah, it was pointed in his direction as I was setting it up. Mm-hmm. And... Um, he didn't know i spoke spanish and he was talking to his translator and and uh... revealed a lot about the way he lives and and you can hear it in his voice the consequences of the life that he's led after his career you know a magnificent career and the symbol for all the the heights of the revolution but i think if you're going to have the words that fidel has uh, above every gym in the country say our athletes are and always have been an example that that other side of how they live has to also be reflected and is equally as valid. And I was never trying to say that's the whole story, but it's part of the story. And it should be allowed to be part of the story. It's okay, it's okay to honor somebody for turning down millions of dollars, but you can't pretend like there's no consequence. Just as America can't pretend that we'll, we'll give you a bunch of money to come here, but that these athletes don't want to go home with the money—that we call them defectors—but they're no more defectors than any other immigrant who's coming here for economic opportunity would be labeled a defector. It'd be absurd to call a Mexican or a Filipino a defector from their countries. They're, you know, they're looking for opportunity. So are Cubans. So Stevenson was living out the good and the bad of his decision, and. Uh, like every other day that I, I'd heard, he, he wanted to get drunk, and, and we, we were sort of forced to drink with him, and uh, the moment he said to not film him, I turned the camera away, and then we had some more discussion about when I could turn it back on. But yeah, I captured some, some seconds that I knew as they were taking place, say goodbye to ever coming back to this country again. Because you've just handed ammunition to every political enemy that Cuba has to say, ha, 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 your most famous hero is a complete hypocrite. He's totally full of shit. And now let's discount any positive thing he's ever done. And you've got it on tape. So for someone
1: in Cuba, my understanding is that um, when you do issue this documentary, which I highly recommend to our listeners and and we'll link in the the show notes to information about it, that movie is not going to show in Cuba. Uh, there's no way that's getting out in Cuba. So, how, I mean, how does it, how does information like that filter back to Cuba? And, and what is the sort of fear of, of the government about a film like that? Do, could it get seen in Cuba?
2: Well, what I was told by my editor, who, as they say, left the country when he was 20, was it the first second after we completed the film of of the cut, he just said... After this gets released, this is going to be on every street corner in the country. It's mm. going to be disseminated on the black market so that people will see this. And this will be important that people will see this other side that they're they're not allowed to be presented. You know, internet access is abysmal in Cuba. So these would be like bootleg DVDs. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. So I I had never considered that during the entire making of it because as, you know, Uh, The vast majority of the film, I think, offers a really strong argument about all the reasons why they stay that I thought it might have a chance to be able to play in Havana in in their film festival, which I've attended many times. But the moment Stevenson entered the film like that, I thought it can never be shown.
1: So you're $40,000 in debt. You're trying to produce what seems to me is like a project that's both being sort of disseminated as text and and was eventually building up to a documentary because you've done, uh, I've read like sort of several pieces you've done or pieces of the documentary. Um, are you thinking of the project at that point as an oral history uh, of trying to capture this, which is these these people whose experience is literally going to die um, in the next decades? Or are you looking at this as a, reportorial or uh, entertainment product that you are then going to have to put out to get out of that $40,000 debt at some point. When you were capturing stuff, were you thinking, okay, this is the climax of a movie or this is going to go into an archive of Cuban history?
2: The germ of it was to present Cuba in the way I hadn't seen it, which was to tell Rashomon on Cuban soil. And then when it escalated to following the most famous defector in the United States, I thought, well, this is another way to look at Cuba through the through somebody trying to pursue their dream against all odds, against all the obstacles that are presented in, in the American system. So I was really just trying to find any means necessary to keep going, you know? So yeah, I had a forty thousand dollar debt, you know, to, to credit cards. Um but I didn't have any assets that they could go after. There was nothing that they could really do to me. I just couldn't borrow more money. So that was the genesis of the film as I wanted to write a book about it. And nobody's gonna pay you money up front to do, to do a book like that. Cuba is not a hot topic. Boxing is not a hot topic. But I thought, but it's a, it's a, it'd be a good documentary, isn't it? Kind of like Hoop Dreams meets Buena Vista Social Club. And the first guy I met was like, I I have ten thousand dollars I could put into this. I can refinance my mortgage, but you have to go make it. I said, but I'm not interested in film. I don't want to. I don't know how to make a film. I don't know how to use a camera. I don't take pictures at at all. And he said, just tell a story, and you know, go over there and hire people who are who are quality people, you know, to to film it. So. That's that's the way I pursued it. And once it was a film, people are much more comfortable investing money. Not to say it was easy to get people to kick in cash. Yeah. But, I mean, in the end, probably raised around $100,000 to keep going. And there were many unforeseen things. I never knew how much access there would be. Every time I was shooting in Cuba, I never knew, you know, as I went higher and higher up the, the totem pole of famous names, what happens if you get arrested? What happens if all your footage gets confiscated? Um, I had footage stolen when I was in Ireland following Regondo, and I'd run out of money to go back to Cuba to interview his wife and kids, which was the last thing I wanted to do after, after interviewing Stevenson. And the only thing I could think of to raise enough money to keep going was to bet on the fight that he had the next day. And it was 20 to one odds that he would knock out his opponent in the first round and i just asked him do you think you can do this and he said fuck bet your life savings man and he did it and so <laughs> how much money did you win i won 12000 euros for it and you can see in the in the documentary there he comes over after he does it um, and he just said he reaches over with his glove and just says so where's my cut like go make your go make your movie and i bought a ticket that night to go visit his wife and kids and i brought the footage of him to, to them, because it was the first time they'd seen him in three years. You know, so it's, it's weird, like you're talking about, is it reportage, or you know, what's the objective? At a certain point, you just have so much gratitude for people who let you in to such an incredible story. You know, I was a witness to it, but there were a couple opportunities where you couldn't just be a witness. You had to be willing to sort of cross over and participate.
1: Yeah as someone who uh dropped out of high school and is is now writing professionally and uh started not knowing how to use a camera and are now coming out with a documentary um how, how do you learn this kind of stuff i mean how how do you how do you put together these skills
2: um i mean for me for me i think it starts with what you know wh- liter- i connected to literature because it, it offered company you know it was companionship and that's a voice and I thought, you know, I I never had to struggle to be weird in school. I didn't have to wear wear strange clothing or anything. I just had to talk to somebody for 10 minutes or 10 seconds for them to say, this guy's really fucking weird. And I thought, well, there's a flip side to that, that I think is if you have a unique perspective that isn't, you know, educated in a sense, but it's, you've gone your own way with it, you can come at things from unique angles. And so what i always tried to do with cuba was i saw a unique opportunity to approach all the experts who were not making big money pursuing the story and just get them to tell me their their version of it uh... you know offer all their expertise that i lacked and be able to include it offer this repository of these great voices in film and academia and um, journalism and really bright smart people who'd spent their whole lives with their eyes fixed on a subject and the best way I found to sort of offer my own spin on it was to just give them a slightly different angle on that thing they'd been staring at that they hadn't seen. And the moment you can do that, you're somewhere new. So I, I want to talk about. Um, y-
1: you said that when you did the interview with uh, Tiafalo Stevenson, that was when you knew uh, you would never be able to go back to Cuba, um, and you you had talked about this project as as a in a, in a way. A way, a way that you've built a lot of relationships with people. And I assume that at that moment you were also realizing that you had, were going to sever a lot of relationships, yeah. just if, geographically, if nothing else. Uh, was that a, a decision that gave you pause?
2: It did emotionally, I mean, but I, I think it was also the conclusion of, of what I wanted. Uh, I had really close friends who for 10 years, they'd say, you know, I, I want to leave, but I can't leave. I can't leave my family behind. I can't say goodbye no matter what would await me if I left and I'd say well, the people I know who've left I, I don't know that you're worse off in it, it, on balance. I don't know I know it's terrible but I mean this this is the Sophie's choice yeah. that, that Cuba offers but after those after those 10 11 years and Stevenson and a few other things that were going on, I was getting to the place where, I can no longer be a witness to this. I do feel your life would be better. Gone. Mm. And it took me a long time to get there. All I was bringing to Cuba was my own confusion. I couldn't offer more than that. So really this whole, everything I've ever done with Cuba is just like the never-ending story. The nothing that consumes everything. My confusion was just that, trying to bring in all these people who would clarify um, my problems, and they only intensified it. They only made it worse. The, the The initial problem of I just didn't understand anything. None of it made sense. Um, so, I think this the the story that that I wanted to explore about, for once, where the decision itself was the villain. You know, you're not. It wasn't about who's brave or a coward if they stay or they go. But this decision is fucking ugly, and both sides are responsible for it. Um, in, in the end, I, I interviewed a, a few kids, and they flat out said on camera, "Get me the fuck out of here." And I thought, now I'm in a really dangerous place because if I show this anywhere, which I I never would, uh, um, these kids' lives are ruined, and all the other boxers that I've interviewed are safe in the sense that their careers are over. They're looking back at something. But, you know, because a, a lot of the structure of the film is sort of like a Christmas carol where people are, you know, the ghosts of Christmas past and, and future are, are, are haunting the characters and constantly the audience is having to assess who would I rather be of these characters.
1: Have you been explicitly told not to come back to Cuba?
2: I was told I was on a no flight list when I when I left. Um,
1: oh, so you're, you're Canadian. So you could actually just fly there directly if you were not on a no fly
2: list. Yeah, but I was on the on the Cuban no-fly list. No yeah. list. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, how do they tell you that? Like, how who who who's got that list? Is it on the internet?
2: Well, uh, when I started writing, I took my wife's last name. So when I went to the airport, actually yeah. leaving, I was very frightened that something was off. Butler of, is not your real name. No. So I I got to the airport and uh, they just said, "Oh, this is interesting because your first name is unusual and it's on our no-flight list, but your last name isn't." And I went, oh, that's strange, you know. <laughs> yeah. I just should have just gone for Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, well, I just, was, I just beeline to get on the plane. But yeah, it was scary. I, I don't. I'm not somebody who likes to take huge chances. I didn't mean to be in this position. Yeah, by any stretch. What,
1: uh, I mean, where do you go from here now that um, this this is over for or at least in you know on the ground over for you? Um, I mean, beyond the. I'm assuming you left behind a lot of personal relationships. But you also like left behind your your subject uh, a bit. Uh, where do you go from here?
2: Well, I think Castro dies. It's, it's the headline on the front page of every newspaper on earth. He's still there, 86, well, no, 80, 87 years old. Um, yeah, he's still around. So I guess that's the last kick at the can where maybe people... Trying to figure out what's been going on, where's it at and where is it going. Those are the answers that I was looking for with the athletes. But I mean I think I need a new subject matter. I, I think uh,
1: What's on the short list?
2: Um, maybe maybe going back to fiction after after ten years would would be fun.
1: Do you see yourself revisiting Cuba when when Cast if, if and when Castor you know, if, if the border opens up again, would you go back?
2: Um well, I'm in the process now. After After a Cuban boxer's journey came out, the second the second part of the book deal I signed was for a memoir of the 12 years I spent. So kind of um, everything but Rigondo's story. Yeah. Um. So it's been strange writing that. You know, leading up to the last couple of days, and and just sort of thinking, oh, you know, I would dearly like to see these people and and go back but i mean i from what i understand it even though there there's some changes that are going on um it's as hard as ever more more high profile people are leaving than ever which means the people who have less money to to make the same decision would do it if they could so that's the big question that's always been lingering with cuba is what comes next so i would be thrilled to see what the developments are um intellectually emotionally i'm dreading it cuz uh it's just been so hard on people and uh you know i think the moral the moral of the book and and of the film and all these characters i've met is these are the bravest people i've ever encountered and i think it's inhuman that they've been asked to be as brave as they are with what they've been confronted with staying or leaving
1: is it hard to i mean is it hard to adjust to 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 living here i mean is is uh as part of you still there
2: um, I I love I love New York I love I, I, I don't as a place I mean it's all abstract but I mean it's, <laughs> it's uh, I love New Yorkers I'm charmed by New Yorkers there are a lot of similarities between these two cities two of my favorite cities are New York and Madrid and they seem like kind of two halves in a way of of Havana I mean you know one one of the things I saw on the last day I almost the, the last day or the last second day before I left Cuba was we got bin laden and I was in Havana when that happened and nobody reported it it wasn't anywhere you know and they're a state sponsor of terror according to our government so I went well okay and I saw it when I went to a hotel to do some email and I noticed on CNN they they showed it which the locals don't have access to and i saw a guy who was obviously in a different ho- uh, tourist hotel who'd seen the news and he was a new yorker and he was handing out cohiba cigars you know each cigar would be the equivalent of a month's salary for a doctor a brain surgeon and he was wearing a che guevara t-shirt well osama bin laden was the cia's most dangerous man when they when they took him out when they ordered his, you know his assassination che guevara in his day Was the CIA's most dangerous man who wanted to blow up New York, who said, I want some nuclear weapons to blow it up, um, when the CIA issued an order in Bolivia to to take him out. So I kind of was sent back to this, this feeling of, is there anything that Kitsch can't infiltrate? You know, like, how long will it be before Bin Laden T-shirts are okay? Yeah. You know, and, and he's cool, or, you know, whatever. Um, but when all the substance is removed from somebody like Che, such an incredibly complicated guy, and he's just reduced to a mouse pad or, like, a drum kit logo or something like that, it does make you question when you've met his family, you've met people who were inspired to do incredibly difficult things on behalf of the guy's legacy, Um I don't know. I guess you have to have a really good sense of humor to just be like, you know, I, I, my wife's parents were in nine 11 too. Like they, one was in a tower, another was a couple blocks away. I'm, it was a big deal and I've spoken with them about it, but to, to see a guy's reaction to that is like, woohoo, we got him, and, and everything's great now. And I was thinking like, nothing's great. We're, we're in a really difficult place. And, Maybe I've got it all wrong and you've got it right. I, I don't know. It, does that make sense? Uh,
1: I, I think it makes as much sense as uh, it. May, it, it uh, you've uh, eloquently uh, described it not making sense. I think. <laughs> um, well, I, I feel like that's as good a place to stop as any. Sure. If uh, you know nothing else to get off your chest, um, tell me the name of the documentary.
2: Oh, it, it's it's <laughs> called
1: Split Decision. Split Decision. And when 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 will people be able to see that?
2: I've entered it in the Toronto Film Festival, and and now I'm going to try and enter it into every major festival I can to, to get it picked so up.
1: Next year or two probably probably as soon come as possible. out. And you have a book
2: out now about... Rigondo.
1: And what's the name of the book?
2: A Cuban Boxer's Journey from Castro's Traitor to American Champion.
1: It's on Amazon. Uh, we'll link to it. It's excellent. Um, it's... Uh, quite uh, attractively priced at a, <laughs> it's a, it's a full length book at a single price for like a happy meal um, and there's a um, there's a great excerpt of it uh, it's SB Nation that we'll link to so uh, check those out thank you very much Bryn Jonathan Butler We'll be back next week thank you so much hey that was the long form podcast uh, thanks very much to my guest Bryn Jonathan Butler you can uh, check out his work in the show notes Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern, Tim Maddox. Our sponsors, WW Norton, Open Road, Integrated Media, and Tiny Letter. We'll be back next week.
0: Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running,